What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's the last weekend of Black History Month in the U.S., Canada, Ireland, and the U.K., and we're here with J.L. to talk about empowerment of a young girl, of family, of community, of the hood, and the voice that she brings to bear in her new book, Wings of Ebony, published by Simon & Schuster. It debuted on the New York Times bestseller list at seven, and the top 10 is the sweet spot for young adult hardcover, and it's richly deserved. In this riveting, keenly emotional debut fantasy, a black teen from Houston has her world upended when she learns about her godly ancestry and must save both the human and God worlds. Welcome, JL. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. It's awesome work. Congratulations. And it was so real that I got swept up in and it didn't feel like fantasy at all. Um, I just really, really thrilled, thrilled for your success and thrilled that you've written a life-changing book, both to us, the reader, and I'm sure to you. So much. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much. It's true. I I do feel the joy for you. I I want you to. We're going to. We have an introduction to you. Um, you were a former educator. Um, you have a bachelor's degree in journalism and an MA in educational administration and human development. I think that's not coincidental. You've been an advocate for marginalized voices in both publishing and your community. And um, you have worked as a preschool director, middle school teacher, and high school creative writing uh, in mem- uh, mentor. So in your spare time, you volunteer, um, you provide feedback for aspiring writers, you love your three littles, and you cook up dishes true to your Texas and Louisiana roots. Um, Wings of Ebony is your first novel. All of this is to beloved. Um, I wondered at this point, now that you're a best-selling author, how you would define yourself. How do you describe yourself? You know, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know that my, uh, that my definition of myself has evolved very much. Um, I am just trying to tell stories um, and I feel very just privileged to, to have the ability to do that. Um, I read something once that like 74% of Americans have the desire to like write a book um, but a very small sliver of those people actually pursue that passion and an even smaller number are able to, you know, see their book in hardcover and certainly see their book on a, on a bestseller list. So to me, I'm still, you know, a mom of my rugrats and um, neighbor in my community and um, advocate and activist in my community as well. Um, and just a writer trying to tell stories that can change lives. Um, I'm certainly grateful for the New York Times accolade and uh, Wings was able to stick on the list a second week, which I've heard is hard to do. So all around, I'm really honored at it. Um, but uh, I'm still the change maker, the optimistic change maker that I was before. Um, 
and just a very extremely regular person who likes to read and write. Great. Well, your pitch, um, your tweet pitch for Wigs of Ebony went viral. Um, and it's said that you wrote the manuscript in 35 days. I feel like there was a story in there for a long, long time. And I wondered how long it had stayed in you before it came out. You know, that's a great question. Um, because truly, it wasn't a conscious process. Uh, like, like what I mean is this story and Rue and her pain and all of these things that I was so compelled to, to write weren't something that I was consciously grappling with. Um, it was only when I was sitting down trying to figure out, you know, what sort of stories do I want to tell? And I sort of allowed myself that moment of just kind of staring at a, at a blank palette, if you will, that Rue's voice came to me. And when she came to me, you know, there was a lot of questions about, well, plot and character and, you know, what genre and all of these different things. But the thing that was really clear um, was that she it, she had a lot of um, sort of repressed pain and, and, and she was just very upset <laughs> and very sad at... Um, the grievances that her, that she and her community had faced and she felt powerless to stop it. And so um, I just remember, you know, when she came to mind, I could, I could feel um, her grief and I could feel that, that powerless feeling. And I think that's what um, was, you know, in hindsight reflect or indicative of the, the, the fact that I had not um, done anything yet with sort of my, you know, my, my grievance over the ways that, you know, my community has been treated and, and marginalized and, and, even, and brutalized even. And so I think that there was a sort of a mix of sort of allowing Rue to speak and sort of to tell her story, um, which was freeing to me to sort of explore these things that I hadn't given conscious space to. Uh, once I sat down, though, to write this story, it definitely just sort of, you know, it flowed. It reminds me of, of the picture in my head is like a, a river and sort of like a dam just sort of breaks and the water just goes gushing past. And I, that's what it felt like, you know, when I finally allowed myself to sit with that discontent and really sort of dig into um, what I like to call my activist heart and really just, just let it bleed all over the page. Um, so it was... Um, it was a really cathartic experience, I think, um, and I hope, I hope that uh, it is as meaningful and as life-changing for readers as it was for me to, to write it. De- definitely. It's, it's about um, power and magic, and um, you can feel that this did flow through you. Some of the power is based on pretty flimsy circumstances, and as we know, in a country of white privilege, that is very much the case, that it might well be based on a lie, it might well be based on falsehoods, and it's not that, you know, it, it's close. The Black Lives Matter movement um, that really gelled the summer, um, it, it is a release of pent-up uh, emotion, anger, passion, and knowing that um, things are not right. Uh, I, I wondered about this idea of um, calling back to your roots. Uh, the Harvard professor, Henry Louis Gates, started something called Finding Your Roots, where African-Americans could trace their DNA. And to me, Rue's journey also recalls this, this idea of reclaiming your past 
your distant and your not so distant past and maybe the emotions about your current situation, all of that is what coalesces inside of you to make an identity. There's a there's a poem from, and I know from your book, your wonderful book, that there's a poem at the end that you wrote. And here's one from Rainer Maria Rilke. They who passed away long ago still exist in us as predisposition, as burden upon our fate, as murmuring blood, and as gesture that rises up from the depths of time. And I felt like that is what happened with Rue. She mobilized. You mobilized. Do other young women of color get to experience that kind of power? And how do they access it? How do you help them access it? And is this book part of the key? Um, That is such a great quote um, and just a a really perceptive question. Um, I think that, you know, when I think about Wings of Ebony and all of the themes that I was uh, weaving into the story, that was a big one. And I think that uh, as a former educator and just as a mother, as a black mother of three black children, um, you know, this idea that we can really inspire our kids in the next generation up to the plate to look to the things, you know, that our ancestors, our predecessors have gone through, have accomplished, and sort of see that legacy as a part of our own potential. I think a lot of times, particularly with inner city kids, and this is why Rue is from East Row, which is this very inner city sort of poor community uh, that the world sort of depicts in a certain way, very much modeled after, you know, my home where I grew up, um, the third ward of Houston. And what I wanted to what I wanted to dispel is this idea that you know that the accomplishments of of Kamala Harris and the accomplishments of of Barack Obama and John Lewis and and all of these great great people Martin Luther King and all of these civil rights leaders that we look to and just leaders in our community is is not it's not them but it's it's us and so I wanted to bridge this this connectedness that these inner city kids feel with where they come from and sort of attach um, and take pride in those accomplishments and, and, and by extension of that, see themselves capable of such greatness. Um, I think on the whole, this idea of looking to our past and looking where we come from, um, black, what black people have endured in America through the civil rights movement, I mean, from 400 years ago to the present, is nothing short of awe-inspiring. And I think that um, I really wanted not only Rue to experience that on the, on the page through the narrative, but I also wanted kids to be able to study that in classrooms and hopefully, you know, internalize uh, some of that too and see it as a source of inspiration and pride and motivation to be proud of where they come from. And I wanted to especially do this for inner city kids. Um, there is sort of this... Uh, there is this sort of piece uh, that I was going through personally as I as I wrote this book, and it does have a sequel, and, which is um, almost done and should Yay. be out um, next year. But the sequel is it continues this theme very heavily um, that we're that we're discussing this idea of like where you come from and being inspired by the by the places that you've come from and and getting to know who your roots are and and, and the implications of that and you know if I'm being transparent like. The, a lot of that was influenced by my own experience trying to trace my roots um, and 
sort of the bittersweet process that that was. You know, as a black woman in America, I traced my roots back as far as I could. And then at a certain point, you know, the information is either not there or, you know, you're not entirely sure if it's accurate. And, and frankly, even if even the, the information that I, would, I was able to pinpoint is bittersweet because it's, you know, I found a picture of, of uh, some of my <clears throat> ancestors from Louisiana and it was, it was an interesting moment. You know, I, I remember smiling um, and, and being rather teary-eyed, you know, seeing it, um, mm-hmm. because my grandparents don't even have these pictures. I, it took a lot of digging and research to find them. And, uh, and then that, that joy sort of turned into, like, this bitter sadness, because mm-hmm. I realized what, um, you know, my ancestors went through. Um, and so it was a challenge to figure out how to balance that in the narrative. And I think the key um, is blending that together, at least for me as a writer, was blending that together with fantasy and magic and sort of making Rue um, lean into who she is, not just become aware of it, but really embrace that and step into that identity and then just sort of behold what she's actually capable of. And I hope it's something that, that young people really connect to. Young and old, I can speak. <laughs> I can speak to this. Um, you know, it really is kind of an avatar, right? She's she she her magic. She discovers her magic, and when you mention these leaders, um, you know, Barack Obama, Martin Luther King, John Lewis. I mean, they are beyond. They their their mojo is beyond. And I, I do think that the concept of tapping into magic, and you so well, capsulized it in the book with the phrase uh, becoming strong in the wound because that's a magic that's different than your straight out coincidental magic. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a font, right? It's something that is um, going to end up being stronger. So um, when, you, when you put this out there, this kind of magic that Rue has, yes, I think it is an avatar I wondered, though, about the concept of of place, because the double-edged sword of it, right, is that place is the identifier that people equate you with. And if you're from a certain kind of place, like a South End, or, you know, that you are not going to amount to anything. So how, how does this square? It's almost like you use the place as fuel, but you can't be labeled with it. And so what, what is that balance like when you're writing the character as well? You know, I love this question. And I think that a lot of the balance lies in sort of the depiction of the community. So, you know, inner city communities are seen a certain way, but I think sort of the first realization, hopefully for readers in Wings of Ebony, is that the, the presumptions about these communities are inaccurate. I would say, you know, at best they're they're partially relevant, you know, and I think more often than not, they're just flat out wrong and really, um, really rooted in a lot of um, bias and prejudice, um, and in some cases, racism. And I think that um, what is so powerful about the community that Rue is desperately trying to get back to, you know, that's a very intentional part of the narrative. She's not trying to leave the hood. She's Mm -hmm. trying to get back to the hood because the, the, uh, what I want the reader to understand and sort of challenge within themselves if they come to this book um, 
as if they come to this book as a window instead of a mirror, what I would love to them to challenge themselves is, you know, well, what do I believe about these inner city communities? Like deep in, in the sort of the roots of my psyche and my per, my perception of kids from this community and the schools there and, and the things that these kids are able to do and the families, like what do I assume about these communities and what sort of negative connotations have I attached to those? And I think that part of, Part of the work I'm hoping this book does is really sort of shake up people's awareness to their own biases, you know, even those subconscious ones. And so I think that that's sort of the first layer of of looking at sort of a story like this and, and, and making sure that the depiction of this community reflects its actual magic and joy. Because, I mean, goodness, when you... When you look through the, when you, when you walk through Rue's shoes in the pages of this story, like, I can't imagine a reader going, man, I want, I don't want, I can't imagine them thinking anything, but I want to go to East Row. I want to sit at Miss Leola's table. I want to have this sort of community, family sort of atmosphere. And I think that when the community is framed in that way, it's not a stretch for the takeaway to be, no, this is a place of power and magic. Have you seen um, all of the things that come out of this place? Have you seen the greatness that comes out of this place? Beyonce is from Third Ward, you know, of Houston. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times you see um, the larger world uh, try to separate an artist from, you know, where they're from. And I, and I think that you can't do that. I'm, I'm determined for people, you know, to not, to not do that to me or Rue. You know, if someone can appreciate my art, then they can appreciate the home that reared me, which is an inner city community in the third ward of Houston. And so I think that the more that people can sort of um, tear apart those sort of preconceived notions and sort of challenge the way that they're defining these communities and viewing these communities and advocating for these communities. Um, I think that the more that we can sort of see actual productive conversations and then from that change. And I think that stories like Wings of Ebony um, are a great way to, to start that process because there's something to be said about walking through the shoes of someone's story that is unlike your own. And in Wings, I specifically wrote um, Wings of Ebony to, without sort of a white gaze. I wrote the book for my community, and there's plenty there for people who come to the book as a window, as I said earlier, but I wrote this book for us. And I think that that adds to its authenticity uh, in such a real way. So I'm very excited to see what people think of that balance and sort of the impact that that, that balance has. Well, I was struck by it. And I think that um, you carried your, your impact across. To me, also the nourishment of this community, the interconnectivity of the community. You know, you say some people have a family tree. My family tree is the whole block. You know, wishful thinking that we would have communities like that. I mean, really... I think that it did bust a lot of myths about the way we think of BIPOC, you know, Black, um, Indigenous, people of color, communities. And I think that it is 
it is not sufficient any longer for our notions of these communities to be segregated from reality or from ourselves. Um, so <laughs> I think you've done a big service there. We're just Thank um, you. Gonna, no, it's really. I, I think this book is is really a gift. We need to take a commercial break, and when we come back, we are going to look at racism, privilege, cultural appropriation, through the lens of a girl that really needs to resolve herself, her past, her anger, and bring out her inner warrior. Don't go away. We'll be right back with JL on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with J.L., author of the book called Wings of Ebony. Thank goodness there's a sequel coming out. I'm holding it in my hand, and there's a fierce, beautiful cover. Uh, The contents are equally riveting, and it's so, so well-deserved that it's gotten a second week on the New York Times bestseller list. I do defy the category of YA, young audience, because I really uh, was enraptured. So, JL, here we are. We're in this conversation about community. Ms. Leola is the bomb. She's the woman who, you know, serves all the plates of food. It's where all the homies hang out. She's like glue. She becomes for Rue. Once uh, Rue and Tasha have lost their mother, she becomes, she takes them in. She hugs them. She gives them the warmth. She gives everyone warmth. And this kind of membrane in a community, it's something there's something so powerful in it. And I, I think that you're revealing it. I mean, there's something occurred to me. It's called the unthought known. Um, this is an obscure concept from the 1980s, Christopher Bolas. But it's, it's about how an individual um, has an experience but is unable to actually think it. They just experience it. It's almost like a beta experience that hasn't been processed verbally yet. And it's, it's knowing that this community is magic. It's power. And you can't go away from that source of nourishment. 
And I, I really, um, I, I wondered if there was something, um, you know, in the articulation of the power that comes from the community is part of creating it as a superpower, expressing it, articulating it, identifying it, because I think it's largely unidentified. Was this, I mean, you, you sort of said as much, but it, it, this was, this is a conscious thought, right? In your, this is a known thought um, in your mind when you're describing this community. Is that true? Absolutely. And I think that there, you know, it's not without too many spoilers, because I certainly hope your listeners will get a copy and read it, but it's not accidental, you know, that Rue sort of struggles to fully grasp this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the moment when she does grasp it involves articulation. That's a really perceptive question. Um, I think that it's not talked about enough. I think that, um, I know that it's not talked about enough. I mean, just, I grew up in this community, you know, and uh, I have two teenage sisters still growing up in this community. And I find myself um, sort of dispelling these uh, oppressive ideas that they are forming about sort of their, the world around them because kids are paying attention. They may seem like they're absorbed in TikTok and their PS5, but they are subliminally forming understandings about their world around them. Um, and that has really lost lasting, um, a very lasting impact. And I, and I think it, it, it can even translate from one generation to the next. Um, and so I think it's just imperative that we are articulating different things and that we're doing that with consistency. And it's not just us articulating these things, you know, but these conversations are happening across all race and gender lines, across all socioeconomic lines and political lines. Um, all of us need to be talking about these things because, I mean, you know, what that does to the psyche of a kid growing up in these communities is incredibly powerful. And the inverse of that is also true. The lack of those conversations and the lack of discussing sort of the magic in these inner city communities and what these kids are capable of, uh, you know, the silence is just as loud as, as the speaking. Mm-hmm. For sure. So by contrast, then, um, Rue, she finds out that she is uh, ancestrally, well, she is, her, her father um, is from another culture. And this is where the fantasy picks up. But it's such an interesting one. And it's so symbolic. He's, he's in a culture in Gizom. I may, may not be pronouncing it correctly. Gizan. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is an island that's off the coast of, uh, of Africa. And in this, in this place, in this island, is where the original magic was born um, by the ancestors, by the people of color. And it's appropriated and it's stolen um, by, uh, of course, colonization uh, by uh, white people. Um, who go to the island and steal the um, magic for themselves. All of this just resonates completely with all of the narratives that have gone on in our cultures. And, you know, now they're, they're building the, the, um, the, and they're grays, <laughs> they're, they're gray. <laughs> That's their skin mm-hmm. color. They, they, they are building their, their power on this foundational idea, which is mistaken that they have magic when in fact they've stolen it. Um, and when Rue, of course, is a superhero, a very unassuming one, I might add, um, when she 
gets to the bottom of this and she finds out she has a friend there, Brie, because she gets time traveled up to, she gets time traveled over to the island to zone. Um, did you, I mean, did you really have in mind Brie, for example, she's this freckled, I mean, because Rue is the only person of color beside her father at Juzon. So the other people, including Brie, are appalled when they find out because Rue has to tell them. And it's hard, sad news indeed that their their power is based on totally flimsy circumstances and um, theft. And Brie kind of like freaks out. She's like, but what about my, what about my grades? What about my achievements? What about all the things that I identify myself with? And I thought to myself, this is exactly the response of white people to, to the rising of, of black culture and people of color. It's like, well, what about my clubs? You know, what about my colleges, my all white colleges? What about, you know, what about, what about? And it's kind of like, but you never owned it in the first place. You know, you never deserved that in the first place. I wonder if you had that in mind when you wrote Brie. And I wondered about this this larger question of, you know, the water finding its own level eventually, whether you think that's actually happening now. Yes. So that's one of my favorite moments in the book. Um, And I wrote that very intentionally because when I, when I realized that what Rue was going to be um, fighting against ultimately was going to be, you know, rooted in racism, I decided, okay, well, we can't talk about racism without talking about allyship and we can't talk about allyship without talking about privilege. And I think it's important. Um, and I worked very intentionally to make Brie a very likable character. I wanted uh, readers who come to my book who may not identify with Rue because maybe they're not black or maybe they didn't grow up in an inner city community or whatever it is. Um, but I, I wanted to make, to make sure that other readers who don't identify with Rue might identify with Brie. And so when they meet her on the page early in the book, it's like, okay, I have my character in the story that I see myself in, and let's go on this journey together. And it, it's, it's not accidental that Bree is incredibly lovable, and Bree works really hard to be a good friend to Rue, and you can't help but just love her when you meet her, because she's, she's just so loyal. And she, it's very, I think the, the really important part in the beginning is that it's very clear that she genuinely loves Rue. Their, mm-hmm. their friendship is not hollow. She truly cares about her. And I think that that well-meaning sort of um, intention is something that a lot of uh, readers who come to this book as a window might identify with. Um, but it is, it is certainly uh, very intentional that as, as Bree's narrative goes on, Rue's reality and the way that that sort of contrasts um, Bree's reality, like they have to come to a head. Because mm-hmm. if their friendship and their and their relationship is going to be rooted in, in, in genuine authenticity and true love for one another, uh, then they have to really see each other. And, you know, Rue has seen Brie, you know, from when they first met, but Brie doesn't really see Rue. And Brie doesn't realize she doesn't see Rue. And so it was important for me to give them that moment because it feels accurate and relevant um, 
And I think that hopefully it's, it's helpful and instructive and encouraging to people who do have friends um, in the black community or people who find themselves sort of outside of this discourse and sort of looking in and wondering, well, I don't really understand. And I do have friends in this community, but I don't personally get the impact. You know, I'm hoping that it's a little eye opening for them. And, um, I think uh, I think I, I think ultimately it's a positive depiction in terms of how Brie handles it. I wanted it to read authentic. I thought, I mean, I, I understand this idea that like every single thing you understood to be true, you know, if if there's something that happens that challenges that, it's not very realistic for a person to just be like, okay, well, I accept this new reality. You know, mm-hmm. there is a, sort of a, a process. I think to getting there. And I think a lot of people sort of stall out in that process. I think some people don't want to get there, um, but you do have people who are willing and interested in doing the work. And um, I wanted to show that because I think the work similar to sort of the stages of grief, um, the work involves a process. And so you do see sort of the stages of grief that she goes through as she's grieving her privilege. And again, it was a very intentional choice that Brie is not a, wealthy character in this magical world. She's very much the sort of the bottom of society, if you will. Um, her family lives in like not community housing, but they live in like government sanctioned housing. And, you know, they, they get a stipend for, you know, their basic necessities. Like she is in no way sort of privileged in a very sort of traditional, obvious way. Um, and that was also an intentional choice because I think it's, it's easier to sort of separate privilege when it's like, well, they're wealthy and they're, you know, that's just a whole different level of privilege. But there are subtle privileges, subtle to, to Brie, perhaps, but very blatant to Rue. Um, there are other privileges, and I wanted to make sure that we were hyper-focused on those because I think that those are sort of the foundational differences in understanding that I'm seeing a lot of conversations around right now. Um, so it's, it, it's you know, it, and it's worth saying, I wrote this book in 2018. You know, uh-huh. so that says a lot about how pervasive these issues were, are, in our community. Like, this is pre-2020. Like, these issues were there. They just now started being talked about in a nation- like on a national platform. Mm-hmm. They were latent, um, and the conversation had to begin. Uh, I love that Brie went into complete denial, and I also love that Rue, um, you know, doesn't force the issue. She's like, okay, you got to work out your shit, and you got to, you know, work it out on your own, and I'm not going to clobber you over the head with it, but, like, here's what's happening, you know. Um, we, we have the source and, you know, you have, uh, you're up in your head. So you've got all this scientific knowledge and that's cool. The technology that Brie has, she does, I think, have some possibility of ascension because of that or some sense of potency about it. But as you say, she's from the, yeah, she's from the mining community. I, I thought it was really interesting that, first of all, this dialogue took place in the warmth of a friendship, which is something that everyone can relate to. Um, I did not have a problem relating to Rue, even though I'm not a person of color. Um, you know, maybe we're dis- disenfranchised for other reasons. Um, maybe we just feel always the outlier. Um, but Rue is entirely cool, and she 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 goes <laughs> about her her business, and she she lets Brie kind of stew in her own juice for a real long time. Um, and she wants to know, is this like a ride-or-die friendship? And the, the ride-or-die, that level of commitment that you find in the community, again, in East Row, 
that that level of commitment, right? It's not quite there in this other community, this fragilely built kind of artifice. Um, and I, I thought to myself, well, the cool part at the very end is when Brie finally says, you know, Rue, I just admired you so much for being who you are and just who you are. I felt I had to do all these other things and jump through hoops and gain approval and all of this stuff. And, you know, I think there's this realization. Rue says to her, this is your power. This is your power to be yourself, who you are. And I thought, wow, okay, there's another takeaway that's accessible to girls of any age and of any color. And I, I wondered if that that message also was something, has it created an outpouring from young black and brown girls that has fueled you even more? Yeah, it's been it's been really awesome to see the the, the reception of of the the characters, and I think, you know, my my dedication in the front of the book, um, I hope, <laughs> makes it very clear that there's something in the book for everyone. Um, and while I wrote it for our community, and while I wanted it to be unapologetically black, and I think that it certainly is, um, I wanted to ensure that for those kids or readers, you know, adult readers as well, reading and, and sort of seeing themselves in Brie and, you know, sort of going through the, a narrative, like understanding um, that they can learn something, you know, being willing to be vulnerable as they read and teachable. Um, I wanted to give them that sort of bit of encouragement too, because I do think that there is uh, sort of embedded in this idea of like, where, where does an ally sort of, sort of plant their flag. I think there is, that does require a level of um, courage and even vulnerability. And I think that so much of what Brie is taught when she grows up is attached to like, you know, your self-worth is so grounded in what you do, mm-hmm. you know, like the way that this society treats you is like, you know, they're mind workers and the way that they contribute to society is through their mind work. And she is gifted in other ways. And even from her own parents, you see the disdain for her other gifts and her other talents. It's sort of, you are this. And I, I'm just hoping that for, for readers who, uh, for readers who really identify with Brie um, and see bits of her in themselves, that it's an, it's an encouragement to them as well to understand that you too are not just what the world says you're going to be. And, and it's okay to sort of step into that courageously. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that that's sort of, you know, there's obviously all kinds of layers and sort of relevant points (laughs) that Mm -hmm. we could tie into that. But I think it's the encouragement of stepping into who you are and sort of confidence in that. And then also, like, if if sort of the the burning on your insides, like the, the way that you feel, feel like you're being pulled is, is to ally. I think, you know, there's, there's a piece of confidence that's required for that too. And so I think that I'm hoping that it's just widely relevant in all of these different ways. And I think the beauty of the narrative, or at least I hope is that, you know, it'll speak to the reader's conscience and like where they are. So if allyship mm-hmm. is sort of on their heart, they're going to pull a walk away with a lot of that. If, if learning to sort of be unapologetically themselves is sort of on their heart, I think those bits of the book will speak to that. And so I think that, or at least I hope that the narrative is, is just able to sort of uh, be a, be a soothing balm uh, of sorts for people and, and, and an encouragement to people from all walks of life and in all different areas of their lives. 
I agree. And I felt called upon for sure. Um, and I love that you say it with um, what's on our heart. We um, have to take another commercial break, but I love also what we've touched upon, which is sensitivity, vulnerability, that you have heroines in this story, friends in this story, who are not beyond crying, at least Rue is multidimensional. She's sensitive. She's emotional. And, you know, Brie, she kind of has to get there. And she does realize that she's expected to never become educated. And she comes close to even having what Jamal has on the, on the origin side, on the source side. So, I mean, I, I think she, she is complex character. And this dynamic of the handshake that occurs between them and how we can ally with one another is worthy. It's worthy of taking in. And it's something that um, will stay with us after reading this, this book, this beautiful book, Wings of Ebony by J.L. We're going to pause for a commercial break and we're going to come back and talk about father-daughter relationships. Don't go away. We'll be right back with the magnificent and magic J.L. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with JL and her amazing book, Wings of Ebony. And I can tell you that even though there are all the subtleties and macro views that we're talking about, it's also action-packed. I enjoyed sitting on the edge of my seat and looked forward to the next time when I could delve into it. It's a book that uh, is compelling and lures you forward. One of the narratives that I especially related to and enjoyed is the abandoning father. There is uh, Rue, the central character, and her father who is distanced, alienated from her. Her father, Assam, um, JL, talk to us about the, the sort of, well, the, the prevalence, um, you know, in, in African-American culture, also in other of our lives, uh, where the father is the abandoner and becomes labeled in a certain way and compartmentalized in a certain way, and um, it becomes evil in a certain way. And maybe she doesn't have all the facts. 
Talk to us about how you developed this thread. Yeah, I think, you know, it was really important for me to, again, depicting my community, I wanted to take sort of a lot of the common stereotypes and and sort of prejudices um, sort of, you know, toward our community, my community. I also uh, was raised in a single parent home by my mother and I did not have um, a strong relationship with my father. I still don't actually. Um, And I wanted to take that story, however, and I want to do two things with it. One, I wanted to flip it on its head. I wanted to, um, I wanted to depict, oh man, how do I do this without spoilers? (laughs) So, okay. I wanted to depict a strong black man, um, in literature um, and I think that that's not something we see nearly often enough. And I mean, that in and of itself is a problem. Um, and I wanted to make sure that there was a strong black man, a black father in my, in my book. Um, the other part of the other part that I wanted to do to that is I did want to show, uh, sort of this idea of like how this child really, really, um, needed and wanted, even though she wasn't consciously aware of that want. Um, her her parents' love and, like, how that shaped her. Um, I also wanted, again, my teacher, I used to be an educator, and so my teacher hat sleep, slips on all the time uh, accidentally. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, you know, I also wanted to sort of insert a bit in there for educators who might have kids walking into their classrooms that are, you know, quote-unquote unteachable or um, they just seem really angry and unapproachable and, like, they just have this shell around them. Well, they do. They do have a shell sometimes, and there's a reason for that shell. And and a lot of times that anger, I I would argue most of the time, that anger is a cover for a wound. And I think that the best educators are able to that child and their shell and understand that um, it's, it's, it's how they're coping. It's how they're coping with a lot of things that, frankly, they didn't have much choice in. It's just sort of, you know, what life has dealt them and, you know, this is how they're sort of processing it or not processing it. And I'm hoping that it's empathy building uh, for, for readers. And I wanted to, um, I also wanted to validate that kid who uh, does feel I mean, Rue, Rue, I wouldn't say she's extremely angry, but I mean, since you're in her head, you see the mix of her outward uh, frustration, but then you also see her inward sort of pain and the pressure that she feels to protect her family um, and to get back to her community. And so I wanted to make sure that those kids carrying those things on their shoulders also felt seen and also Mm -hmm. felt like, okay, my reality is normalized in this book. I think so often black kids pick up books where their lives are depicted as, you know, caricatures or, you know, these stereotypic, mm-hmm. stereotypical prejudiced um, depictions of like who black people are. Goodness, in elementary school, the book, the first book I remember reading was a black character and it was The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And I was <sighs> like, how on earth, and this is a predominantly white school, I was just, why is this the story that my white counterparts are being introduced to, to introduce them to 
blackness. Like, why? You know, that is so problematic for so many reasons, and it doesn't help dispel stereotypes. It reinforces them. And so I just thought it was imperative to show uh, um, a book where that is different, um, where, where this book is very much uh, full of black joy and hope um, and encouragement, and it's just, it, it's a, what I hope to be a very sort of... Um, a, a very riveting read. Um, mm-hmm. The one that you're excited to read just because it's like a fun adventure, like you were saying earlier, like it's very much a page turner in that way and very thrilling. But then also like, I want it to be sort of the book that you hug when you finish, because it's like, man, when have I seen my community painted in this, in this light with power and magic and, and as the heroes of our own stories and, and not side characters like in Huckleberry Finn. I think that there's a convenience of thought, and it's an ugly one, where we haven't had the vibrancy of black characters who have passion, strength, strength of character, the way Rue's father does, the way her two uh, friends, Julius and Jamal, on the other worlds. Um, Julius is in East Row, Jamal is in Jizome. I think that this revelation is an important one because it in, it disentangles the whole the whole way of compartmentalizing um, and finding out that her father was in fact not only uh, her her champion but also it gives her like protection really was a word that came up for me over and over again. Like she had protection from her ancestors. She didn't know she had, as does every African-American kid. And the thing is that, you know, it became manifest in this guy, Asim, who does come down and and kind of joins her and makes the sacrifice for her. We're not going to give spoiler alerts, but here was the father she thought she never had, the father who she, you know, stereotyped a certain way and nothing could have been further from the truth in that. And I think that upending that narrative, it is really important because people who have disappeared from our lives for one reason or another, we really don't know the truth. And through her magic and accessing, she she kind of does find out a different reality, um, which I think opens up a different space in her um, and in general just allows herself again to feel her power unapologetically um, and to feel that which came from her her ancestors. So I, I really, I think it's a book that lingers with you even after you finish the joyride of uh, the thrill of it. Um, I, I love the idea that you said to yourself, why is this the storyline? And that had to be part of your motivation in writing these characters, right? Change it Absolutely. up. Absolutely, because it's not my narrative. It's just the one that's portrayed. And so, you know, I had the opportunity to tell the truth and to show what it really is. Someone asked me once in an interview, you know, why was painting the inner city as magical so important to you? And I was like, because it's true. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my community, I look at, I look at the beautiful talent that comes out of inner city communities, just the magic and the giftedness. Like, uh, it, you know, our vice president is an HBCU graduate. Beyonce came from Third Ward. Jay-Z came from an inner city community. There is so much incredible, and those are just a few examples. Obviously, there are so many others in different uh, 
in different industries outside of like entertainment and even outside of politics. There are beautifully brilliant black magic in these communities. And I, that's just not the narrative typically. And uh, I just, that didn't sit right with me. Right. And um, I think honing, the way it's honed people, the strength in the wound, I think is, is also, but it isn't necessary <laughs> to have all of that. You talk about the grind. And I wondered if you'd speak to us a little bit about the grind. Your mother instills it, well, Rue's mother instills it in her, that you grind, mm-hmm. you, find a, you find a way where there isn't a way. How much grinding is acceptable? How much of it needs to fall away? systemically talk to us about the grind all of all of it needs to fall away systemically right like all of it needs to fall away i think um if if only that were in our control um, but it's not you know and that that is sort of the long game that is the the eventual goal that is what we're working toward collectively as a people um ourselves and allies are you know working t- together but in the in the meantime you know we have to do something to uh, protect our families to create opportunities for our children to better the next generation, um, to build generational wealth in our families. So we, we are, we are working toward sort of the long-term goal, but in the short term, we're also, um, having to rise to the occasion or make a way out of no way, as Rue says, to persevere and to push. Um, and I think that, uh, the more, allies come alongside our community and we, we sort of join in this together because I always say racism isn't our problem. Like this is a problem white people created, not, not us. And Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, as we sort of band together to fix this, to, to work toward change, um, you know, it definitely hopefully lessens the burden on our shoulders to do all of the work um, as it should, because it's, I mean, we sort of the labor falls on our shoulders, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a problem that we created. You know, we, you know, there are all sorts of layers that and we could talk about that for an entire another hour, but mm-hmm. I guess the point to take away there is like, we are in a situation where ten- tenacity is not an option. It is a requirement and perseverance. And um, I want I wanted Rue to just ooze all of that. And um, I certainly got that from my grandmother and my uh, mother, my grandfather, even, you know, that's just sort of the way that they raised me and they let me know, you know, what's required. You have to work twice as hard to get half. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we want that to get half piece to change. And that's what we're working on. Um, but the you have to work twice as hard piece needs to change as well. Uh, in the meantime, though, you know, we're doing the work. Just yes. publishing a book, um, to be quite frank, was, it was, you know, it was an uphill battle um, as a black creator. And I'm yes. still working hard to build a, you know, build a career in this, in this area for that very reason. I'm hopeful that it's opened a gate, JL, and I can't thank you enough for being with us to open that gate, to show us the way through your book, Wings of Ebony. You can find JL on author JL and Twitter and also Instagram, author JL. You've shared so much of yourself generously and through this fabulous book, it can be purchased anywhere books are sold. Thank you for uh, to our engineers, Mac Widener and Aaron Keller, our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe, be well, and access your power. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. 
Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 